Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. As a plant-based cheese company, Dea has never talked about beef in an ad before because someone somewhere once had a beef with saying beef and plant-based together. So putting a slice of Dea cheese on a beef burger, not okay. Well, our delicious melty cheese has a beef with your beef about beef because any step towards plant-forward eating is a step in the right direction. Dea, 100% plant-based, even if you're not. Now made with Dea Oat Cream Blend. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh, how so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your Ikea items for store credit. Or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. No one was like him. Terrible were his crimes. But if you wish to blackguard the great king, think how mean, obscure and dull you are. Your labour's lowly and your merit's less. You talking Thomas to me? <laughs> 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 that is, uh, that's Robert Lowell, his poem right. on Alexander. Um, no, we've talked fan, about clearly. whether... <laughs> well, he kind of is, though, isn't he? Because I think what he's saying is that Alexander is like a... He's the apex predator. He's a kind of tyrannosaur. Yeah. And yeah. That, that people saying... Oh, you know, he did terrible things, or he, he's a, a kind of evil man for conquering the world. I mean, you might as well blame a, a Tyrannosaur for yes. savaging the flesh of a Triceratops. Well, it's absurd to it's... blame a king in, you know, the 4th century <laughs> BC for trying to conquer other people. I mean, that's kind of the job description. Well, although having said that, I mean, obviously there were people who, who blamed him. So Demosthenes, um, yeah. when the news came that Alexander had died, said, how, how can surely, surely the stench of his corpse would fill the world? Yeah, Demosthenes was so, a terrible man, though, wasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> I need be team Alexander, a Ciceronian figure. <laughs> yeah, he is. He is. Um, so obviously, we're talking Alexander the Great. Uh, this is the second part of our um, series on Alexander. Uh, in the first part, Dominic, uh, you leading the way because you've written a, a top children's book on Alexander. Top top Com- children's book. Yeah. A top top children's book. Very good. Uh, which has come out this week, if I can say so. Uh, <laughs> if you have, don't know what to buy your your nephew or something or your niece, this is clearly the thing. But surely you don't need to wait for Christmas. You could buy one for yourself, buy one for your friends, and then buy one for all your relatives at Christmas. Well, I'm assuming that would be the ideal. All have a copy already, right? Because it'll have been out for two or three days, so there's no excuse. (laughs) Well, they've Um, had a day to listen to this to the previous podcast. They have, so I'm sure they'll be rushing out to buy. Anyway, um, so uh, we in the previous episode we got Alexander to Egypt. He's um, founded Alexandria. He's had an audience with uh, Amun in the uh, oasis um, of Siwa. And now he is preparing to strike east and attack Darius the Third 
king exactly Chimenid, king of persia so i think we said in the last episode didn't we this was the point at which you you could have not you could have stopped i mean a sensible thing and in fact his general parmenian has said to him basically why don't you take the deal that darius is offering you yeah. which is you take the western bit of the kingdom the western fringe of the persian empire you're suddenly the by far the richest man probably who's ever been in greece um why why don't you take the deal and alexander but if says, you're mean obscure and dull that's what you do but if you're not <laughs> yeah. if you're alexander yes. you go let's go let's go and so, so he does he and his school friends and these other blokes who followed them <laughs> they set off from memphis they go back up the coast of phoenicia and then they turn right so they turn east. Now, Darius all this time has been amassing a new army, hasn't he, in Babylon, I think it is. He's got elephants. He's got more of his own family. And he's, he's got chariots with sides. Yeah. So he's got some distant cousin called Bessus. Bessus is oh, a very yes. bad man. He's a very yes. bad. He's, he's um, yeah, he's basically a sort of, like a sort of Hollywood casting agency from the 1950s has been asked to supply a Persian. <laughs> Bessus, <laughs> Bessus is the man they supply. He's sort of black-bearded, dark-eyed. Uh, twirling a moustache. Twirling a moustache, exactly. Yes. He's a pantomime villain. He's come from Bactria with all this cavalry from Bactria. So Bactria is... Bactria and Sogdiana, it's Afghanistan and beyond yeah, Afghanistan. Yeah, exactly. It's sort of um, the fringes of Iran, Turkmenistan, Afghanistan. It's this yeah. kind of heartland of cavalry and horsemen. And he's pitched up with all these sort of wild warriors. And um, Darius has what seems a very good plan. He's going to tempt Alexander. He's going to burn all the fields. Um, and he's going to tempt Alexander has to keep coming. Um, scorched earth policy, basically. And he's decided where he wants to face him. He wants to face him into a place called, place called Gaugamila. Which I've uh, been to. Have you? I was going to mm. ask you because I know you've been to kind of Iraq yeah. and Kurdistan. Yeah. So, so Gaugamila is also called Arbella. Yeah. Arbella is, is current day Erbil. I think it's about 30 miles south of, of where the battle was fought. So it's Kurdistan. Pleasant, a pleasant place. No, it was unbearable. It was awful. It was it was unbearably hot. Yeah, and dusty. And the the dust degrees. is going to be important in the, yes, in the very battle. very dusty. Um, so that was very exciting. Yeah. So so we I, I made our fixer. We were making a film out there. I made the fixer do a diversion did just so I could. Did see you? Oh, yeah, I did. that's great. I'm I very did. envious. And was there anything to see at all? No, nothing. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> oh, disappointing. No. So yes, there's a. They keep the uh, the Macedonian army just keeps coming. They keep going and going and going. And then the story goes that they arrive in, I think, October 331. And Alexander goes to the top of this hill and he looks out and he thinks, oh, God, that is a very big Persian army. Because <laughs> the, the sources, the Greek sources claim that Darius had a million men, which I yeah. think is very unrealistic. But some we're, people we're say back to Thermopylae. They think he maybe had 100,000 and Alexander had about half that. And he's got chariots, he's got elephants, he's got the whole works. And you can tell that Alexander is worried because he doesn't attack straight away. And he ta- he stru- he forms a camp and he takes a few days to kind of think about it. And then he decides, okay, we're going to attack. And then there's this extraordinary story, which I'm sure you will say is made up, that he goes to sleep. And the next day, all his captains get ready and they've all got kind of, you know, oiled up or whatever they do before battle. <laughs> and he's still in bed. And they can't have their breakfast until he wakes up and he still doesn't wake up. And eventually Parmenian goes into the tent and says, what's wrong with you? How can you oversleep today of all days? And Alexander says, well, it's because the one day where I'm, I'm not worried. I know we're going to fight and we're going to win. Do you think he really said that, Tom? I think that's absolutely bound to have happened. <laughs> <laughs> it has it has, the, it has the slap of absolute authenticity. Well, well something else it. very, very plausible happens immediately <laughs> afterwards. You know, they, they get they gets on his horse and he says to all his men, uh, he gets on Bucephalus and he says, you know, we're about to win, Zeus is with us. And then do you know what? They see overhead in the sky, 
an eagle, wow. the messenger of the gods of Zeus, wow. a sign that they're going to win. And I'm yeah. sure that absolutely happened because it's in the sources. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, anyway, they win. It's very dusty, isn't it? It's very, it's dusty. very dusty. It's all confusion. The Persians all run away. And there's a big this... gap opens up in the Persian line. Yeah. And Alexander and his cavalry, shoot, straight in. Exactly so. Exactly. And this time, Darius doesn't Like a dagger away. thrust into the innards of Persian militarism, Dominic. Very good, Tom. You yeah. should do, uh, <laughs> you should, you should try writing popular history books. I think you'd be a natural. <laughs> so this time, Darius is unlucky. His men run away, but he doesn't run away at first. Then he, ru- he runs away in a very confused way. So it's not clear whether he's already a prisoner of Bessus or whether Bessus is, or what's going on. But anyway, he's vanished and they can't catch up with him. Up into media. Exactly. So now Alexander goes, Babylon. he occupies Babylon. Is it not passing brave to be a king and ride in triumph through Persepolis? That's the next target. Yeah. So he takes Babylon. He takes Susa. He fights another battle with some Persians, smashes them. Uh, and then he gets to Persepolis. This is the, the heartland, isn't it, of Persia? This beautiful city. I mean, at this point, the Greeks must be thinking, and the Macedonians must be thinking, you know, wow, this is on a scale that we've never seen before. And of course, they behave very badly. Well, this is one of the great moments in Alexander's career that people debate. Okay, Did- so, we ha- so we have a question here from Joshua D. Terry. To what extent was Alexander's conquest of Persia actually intended as revenge for campaigns of Darius I and Xerxes in the 5th century BC? So those are the kings. Darius sends expedition to Marathon. Uh, Xerxes sent the, led the great expedition that ends up burning Athens in 480 BC. Um, we mentioned in the previous episode that Philip has been using this as a kind of justification to get the, the Greeks on board. Yeah. Um, Alexander turns up in, uh, in Persepolis. Persepolis, of all the uh, great Persian capitals, is the one that's most associated with the Achaemenid dynasty, the dynasty of Persian kings to which Darius III belongs. Um, in, in Babylon and in Susa, Alexander has behaved with um, exemplary forbearance. Uh, yeah. and in fact, in, in, um, uh, at Susa, he allows the Persian commander of the, of the citadel there to stay in office. So he's already accommodating himself to the local elites when he's... Absolutely. And in due course, he's going to appoint, I think, a Persian um, as satrap of Babylon. So essentially, he's already... You know, he's, 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 he's a great general, isn't he? I mean, he's top general. Yeah. <laughs> but, but he's also a brilliant, brilliant political strategist. He, he clearly has this astonishing ability to read a situation yeah. um, politically as well as militarily. And he understands in a way that many, many of the Macedonians don't, that the only way that he can possibly hope to establish Macedonian rule over this vast empire that he's conquered is, in a sense, to get the Persians on board. I think that's absolutely right, Tom. Step yeah. into the platform heels of the great I king I think he recognised he's more imaginative than some of his comrades. Vastly more imaginative. I mean, he's one of the most imaginative rulers who's ever lived, I would say. So he sees straight away, I think, when he gets there. This isn't now just a matter of like making ourselves very rich, going back and buying a big farm in Macedonia. No, this is he suddenly thinks the machine is ripe for the taking. I can, I don't need to smash up the machine. You decapitate it, and you, yeah, you, you take. I'll it take over. it over. I'll do, you know, I'll, I'll take it over and get it to work for me. I can be the next Persian king. I think that's basically what he thinks. And why wouldn't you be? It's a much better thing to be, as we've talked about in our Persian episode, it's yeah. a much better thing to be the leader of Persia than the leader of Macedonia. This relatively- but ideally, it'd be both. 
Well, exactly. He can be both. That's what he's <laughs> so, thinking. He thinks he thing. can be ruler of everything. And, and pharaoh of Egypt. And, and, and he can. Well, he is. And, and he's king of the world in Babylon. I mean, he get, he takes over all these titles. Well, the interesting, he never actually takes over the, the, the title of um, king of kings. So, so that's never, a step too far. A step too far. But he does take over the kind of the regional ones. And so he, he behaves, you know, so he, he, he treats Babylon and Susa as a Persian king would treat Babylon and Susa. Yeah. But, but then Persepolis, Persepolis. Persepolis is different because Persepolis is the dynastic capital of the Achaemenids. So what's he going to do with it? And he basically, he ends up deciding he's going to burn it. Well, this is the question because some sources, the great story is that they're having a great sort of drinking bout. And and so this is what ties in with Joshua Terry's question about, is it revenge for the burning of Athens? So some people say he does this as policy. He always meant to do it. And he deliberately said, I'm going to burn down this fantastic columned hall and all these wooden ceilings and stuff as revenge, deliberate revenge for the destruction of the temples. But then other sources say, no, they're having a great uh, evening. And this is the first point at which you realise that they've actually not come without female company. They've brought all their girlfriends with them and courtesans. Athenian and prostitutes. Athenian prostitutes, yeah. yeah. So Ptolemy has this favourite called, what's she called? Thais is something like that. I don't know how you would pronounce it. Um, and she says, they're all absolutely hammered. And she and says... She's Athenian. Yeah, she's Athenian. She says, you know, you've done a really good job, Alexander, but why don't you let me but lead us in burning down Persepolis? And he says, ah, oh, great idea. And so they all get torches and they burn it down. And historians have argued ever since, is this, did she really do this? I think is not. This to, you don't think so? No, I don't. I think because... she did. I like, that's a great story. <laughs> it is a great story. And it's and the thing about Alexander is he attracts great stories. Yeah. Like blotting paper soaks up ink. Yeah. Uh he it, clearly he burns down Persepolis, but the question is why does he do it? Yeah, and the interesting thing though, Tom, is when you read the academic historians, they divide pretty much fifty fifty on all the big questions, and it's clearly because some can't bring themselves to let go of the story they read when they were about nine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, you know, we don't know, we don't know. I mean, you, you know, got to toss a coin. You could say yeah. that he he did it, uh, and clearly, I, I I would suspect, and this. Depends on rating Alexander, but I w- would rate Alexander's political intelligence. Obviously, burning down Persepolis is going to play well with the Greeks back home. Yeah. Uh, and Alexander is always looking back to Greece. There's been yeah. kind of stirrings. There's been kind of, you know, the Spartans are still playing awkward. The Athenians are restive. Um, at some point, Alexander is going to send the Greeks back home. He's going to. So, 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 so he needs to keep the Greeks on board. Yeah. So. Burning down Persepolis, he can pitch that as being revenge for Athens, having yeah, been burnt by sense. Xerxes. I, 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 deep down, I think that probably makes sense. And I think it's also telling Persepolis is not the biggest city. The biggest city is Babylon, and he doesn't hit the biggest city. Well, Persepolis why would you? Is, Persepolis, you yeah, of course. Persepolis is expendable. It's a great, you know, you can burn that down. It's a great political message, but you're not really losing that much. But also, you're not, you, also, you can frame it to the Persians that you're attacking the, the dynasty. Yeah, not the. But not, not Persia itself. Not Persia yeah. itself, because you're you're showing respect to Susa, uh, and from this point on, having burnt down Persepolis, Alexander is going to go to great pains to show his respect for for, for Persian customs. And- but what he does next, Tom, is interesting because he doesn't say, "I'm going to now stay and rule." He says Darius is still out there, somewhere. He's fled with Bessus. We don't know where. Let's go after him, and so they all go after him. They do, and um, by this point, Bessus has decided that he wants to be king. Yeah. And so he takes over, calls himself Artaxerxes the third, fourth, sorry. And Alexander finds Darius bleeding to death, doesn't he? He's been kind of abandoned. That's on the right. Road they find a, they they so the the he's been chained in a litter. Uh, a sort of they're they're charging across on the road, the great highway that leads to Khorasan in the east. Um, they know that Darius is ahead of them, 
And they stop one day and they see this sort of battered old litter or chariot or cart or something by a well. And they go and look. And inside is Darius bleeding to death. And he says uh, to the guy who finds him, who's called Polystratus, he says, tell Alexander, thank him for looking after my mum and my <laughs> wife. Tell him I give him my right hand. And then he dies. And of course, which again another, is entirely another story which absolutely <laughs> happened. <laughs> <laughs> because the genius of this is that Alexander can now cast himself um, as the Avenger of well, Darius III, well, the which then in enables the- him to cast himself, you know, having burnt down Persepolis, he can now say, I am the heir of the Achaemenids. In the case, in the space of about five genius. minutes, Alexander goes from, we must hurry, we must catch Darius and kill him, to like, poor Darius betrayed by, <laughs> I, 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 I will avenge him. Yeah, I will avenge and him. And so they do capture Bessus. Well, there's a long way to go because they, they keep going, don't they? Now, this is another point, Tom. Up into this Afghanistan. Is, this is really the point at which you say, okay, something very weird is going on. Because anybody else would say, that's it, done, I'm the new king of Persia, great. Well, would you? You wouldn't chase him into Afghanistan. That's demented. Well, uh, except that, you know, as we know in modern times, um, (laughs) Afghanistan can be a a womb of... Yeah, but just leave it alone. Mighty warriors. It's so far away. If you've got a guy guy claiming to be the king of Persia, and he's got all his pals up there, and they're amazingly proficient cavalry, and you've got, and you've just conquered Persia, and you're claiming to be the Persian king. You, I don't think that you can afford to leave him up there. The reason I think this is odd, and the reason I think it is more contentious, is that this is about the point where you get the first reports of discontent among the Macedonian high command. Of course, because nobody wants to go up there. Because it's after they first gone to Afghanistan that um, uh, Alexander f- discovers, supposedly discovers, a plot to kill him. And Philotas, who is the son of Parmenian, his chief general, is in on it. And he says, right, we've got to kill Philotas and Parmenian. Yeah. And he does. And I think that's the point. Because it's clear that at that point, some people, are, I think, are thinking, hold on. I came for two years yeah. to get some money out of it. I didn't think I'd be going thousands that- of miles and into Afghanistan, a place I've never heard of. But I don't think that contradicts the fact that Alexander has good strategic reasons for okay. doing what he's doing. Fair enough. Fair because enough. Alexander basically is is having to start, you know, he's no longer thinking as a Macedonian purely. No, you're he's right. starting to think as a Macedonian who's conquered Persia and who has to get the Persians on board, which is a different thing. But, and, yeah. and the rank and file don't have to bother with that. And you can entirely accept, particularly in this year of all years, you know, soldiers from Europe do not want to go heading up into Afghanistan, yes. which is a completely terrifying, mad place full of people who want to kill you and impossible places to capture. But you can equally see that Alexander's claim to rule Persia depends on him eliminating a rival to that title. It also requires him, if he's going to be you know, king of the Persian Empire, he needs to lay claim to all the lands that were ruled by the Persians. Yeah. And it's also, to back you up, actually, Tom... This is the point at which you get the first reports of him wearing Persian clothes. So he wears a Persian purple cloak. He wears a Persian diadem. So it's tied onto your forehead by a white ribbon. And he starts to ask his men. He says, you have to greet me in the Persian way, proskinesis, which is basically blowing it. It's not. It's often described as sort of groveling on the ground and kissing the floor, but it's not quite that. It's blowing them a, a kiss, isn't it? You get to blow them a kiss at dinner. <laughs> Well, that's one way of putting it. What do you, what uh, do you think they should? But what do you think? It no, is? I think it's more formal than that. I think it is. It is a more formal they exchange gesture of submission. Kisses. Yeah, it's they a, exchange it's a kisses. Gesture and of submission. And he's travelled with a historian, a historian called Callisthenes, who's Aristotle's uh, nephew, right? Yeah, he's Aristotle's protege. He's come as the histor- as the expedition historian, which is a yet more testimony to Alexander's educatedness. 
um, but ends up in the plot. This pen-pushing historian refuses to do the kiss. And Alexander says, well, if you won't do it, I won't give you a kiss. And he says, oh, well, I can live with that. Alexander is absolutely outraged at this. And kills him. Kills him, yeah. They rack him and then hang him, I think. And there's some, some, some historians say they carry him around in a cage, which seems <laughs> harsh. Although I can think of some historians that don't. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yes. Um, um, so anyway, they're, on, they're going into Afghanistan, don't they? They, they, they capture Bessus. So he's also tortured. He's tortured to death as well. We're now compressing years. I mean, this is the point to make rather than go through it blow by blow. This very, very complicated campaign. They are there for absolutely ages. They're there for about three years. And, and it's awful. And it is awful. It's all, they're always either too Freezing cold or too cold. hot. <laughs> yeah. Um, there are places, the Sogdian rock. They're always scaling rocks. And there's the sources <laughs> are so confused because in the different sources, they're scaling different yes. rocks at different I, times. I no and who they are. So, and so there are certain themes, which is that Alexander starts killing his nearest and dearest. So you mentioned Callisthenes. He's also Black Clytus. Yeah, who saved him at the Battle of the Granicus. Yeah. He saved him at the Granicus. He gets killed, supposedly, in a, a murderous brawl. In a drunken, yeah, drunken rage. Alexander is busy founding cities called Alexandria, left, right and centre, uh, all over Afghanistan. Um, he uh, he marries um, the daughter of one of the Persian satraps. I think he's the guy who has the Sogodian rock. He's Oxiates. Um, Oxiates and his daughter, Roxana. Roxana. Now, this is strange, though, Tom, because she's not the obvious person to marry, is she? There are, there are better connected well, Persian noblemen, you know, in the heartland. Yeah, Why but, does but, he but, go all the way out there and marry somebody from the wilds of Afghanistan? Because he's desperate to, to pacify it. Well, that suggests exactly that he's in deep trouble, actually. He's, That's he's, what that he, always seems yeah. to suggest, that he's in deep trouble in Afghanistan. Never invade Afghanistan. But he wins. He does. But you see, I mean, you know, if... if um, I don't know, Biden had married the daughter of <laughs> yeah. Mullah General Omar Dostum or something. Or something. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, I mean, it's that kind of That's scenario, I think. It's a great image. Uh, uh, yes. Joe Biden, uh, that would be a real... If you've flown into like Bagram Air Base or something. And... Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you see, that's the benefit of a classical education. <laughs> it's, yeah. the, it's the obvious... Obvious step to take. He was. I, don't, I never saw him scaling any rocks. Did you? Um, <laughs> no, no, no. Anyway, so so it it ends up kind of pacified, and the, yeah. and the thing is that it that you know those foundations, those Greek foundations, will endure. Yeah, we talked about this in our Afghanistan podcast. Much longer than um, than than Greek rule in Persia itself. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? This Greek kingdom. So it is actually effective. Um, yeah, it's mad on one level because never invade Afghanistan. But it does make strategic sense as well. I mean, he actually goes beyond Afghanistan. And that's he Alexander, go- isn't it? He goes to Uzbekistan and Tajikistan. Yes, right up, I mean, the Oxus. At I that mean, it's point, astonishing. At that point, what are they doing there? They're so yeah, far it's, away it's, it's from It's really Greece. astonishing. And I guess that that's, that's, that's the fascination of Alexander, is that you can cast it as either absolutely lunatic or absolutely f- solid strategic firm sense. Yeah. And perhaps it's it's both. I think there's a point here where he's tipping. He's he's got addicted, personally, to the routine of the conquest and stuff, and he just doesn't want to go back. I don't think so. I think I think that it's about um, having to make Persia secure. But that does not explain what he does next, Tom. Invade in India. Yeah. Well, it does because India was part of the Persian Empire. 
There's a this is clearly the point at which they have been on the road for what are we three two six? So they have been on the road. I mean, I have to look it up. They've been all, they've been there so long. Uh, well, they they invaded in three three four. They um yeah, eight years. They are they are knackered. His men are have been through the most hideous conditions of all kinds. Lots of them are dead. They've all got different weapons that they set out with, different armor. They're not in their same clothes. They've accumulated this great baggage train of kind of hangers-on. And this is the point at which somebody says to him, do you fancy coming to India, giving us a hand in India? <laughs> and he says, <laughs> no, great, no, yeah. No, no, it's not like that. It's not like that. It is. They it, get a guy from Taxila who comes to the court and says, come and give us but, a hand. But the reason he's doing it is that, is that the Indus is the line that marks the limits of Persian rule. And so if, if Alexander is laying claim to the spear one Persian empire, he, he is legitimately able to conquer it. But you know as well as I do that he just keeps going. So I he do. goes down to Taxila, which is modern day, roughly modern day Islamabad. There he meets the naked philosophers that we talked about the in the last sophists. Yeah. Uh, he then goes to the river Jhelum, the Hydaspes, as the Greeks call it, where he meets King Porus, who's the, basically in the Punjab. Well, meets. <laughs> well, what he said, he says, he sends Porus a message, says, I'd like to meet you. And Porus says, great, I'd like to meet you too. I'll meet you on the banks of the Jhelum. I'll be bringing elephants and a massive army. In a monsoon. <laughs> yes, in a monsoon. Say goodbye to your life. And Alexander says, great, I'm up for it too. He pitches up, he crosses the river, defeats the elephants. In a monsoon. It's amazing. With his big spears, Tom. With this his is where spears. the big spears come in. And this is where handy. the elephant medallions come in. Yeah. And then he's very, again, you're the political nous. Porus is not killed. And Alexander says to Porus, you fought tremendously well. You're obviously a fine fellow. Why don't we become allies? And you can become basically a glorified satrap. And Porus says, great. And so they become great pals. So he basically incorporates Porus's kingdom into his orbit, as it were. But then again, he keeps going. He still doesn't. His men now are at the point where they're, please, can we go home? No, let's keep going into India because he thinks he's going to get to the end of the world. And although well, that seems he? laughable and myth, why wouldn't? So he you think see, that? I think I. But you see, I think all of this is is very mythologized. Of course, it is. Of course, it, I mean that's the nature of the sources. But this is this is uh, you know his pathos, his yearning, his yeah. But why else salt, does he keep going? Weeping salt tears because There's, there are no fresh wells to conquer. That's Eric that Bristow. Kind of, that's yeah, Eric. Sorry, Bristow. Only twenty-seven. Um, <laughs> why does he keep going, Tom? Well, does he keep going? Well, but I mean, no, actually, he, he turns. Well, actually, he turns around, doesn't he? They cross more rivers. They get to the river Hyphasis, and there, there's this dreadful scene where his men, who are in the monsoon, they've been attacked by lots of snakes. They're very miserable, <laughs> and they've met Indians, and they say, oh. "Is the end of the world there? Can we get?" Because they think they're going to build ships and sail around back to Greece, and the Indians say, "There's actually not the end of the world. There's just a hell of a lot more India, and there's more civilizations, very fierce empires." The others, the rest of the Macedonians say, Christ, this is definitely time to go home. And Alexander says, no, great, let's bring it on. Let's go and tackle them too. I, I think that everything around this is, we have no evidence for it that isn't well, we centuries have, later. We have, isn't but centuries we know, later. But we know, on the, we know that those sources, so you mentioned the sources being written centuries later. Uh, they are Arian. Quintus Curtius Rufus, Diodorus, Plutarch, and so on. We know that they are compiled from originals that are now lost. So Clitarchus, Callisthenes, Nearchus, Aristobulus, Ptolemy, some of whom were Alexander's mates and wrote accounts of what happened. But they haven't survived, have they? 
No, but we know that these account, these secondary we sources we that we're no using, idea, but we have we no do, idea what was in them because they quote them because they say so and so says this, so and so says this. But it I think this. No, I, I, I think that that all this stuff is actually about Rome. All these st- stories. I know are you think about that, Rome. but I think you're an outlier, and historians of Alexander don't agree with you. And what I would further say is that um, I think it's also about constructing the myth of Alexander as yeah. a kind of Achilles figure who never knows when to stop. So you don't think this happened? So you, unlike all historians of Alexander, think that the mutiny didn't happen? I think there, pro- there probably was a mutiny. Oh, I don't. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but but I think that down. he's backing think, down already. No, what I think is that uh, Alexander reaches the Indus. He reaches the uh, Hydaspes. He reaches the limits of of what had been Persian rule. Yeah, and that's where he turns back. And. It seems to me a striking coincidence that he should turn back exactly at the point where Persian rule ends, unless there is significance in the fact that uh, he's reached the limits of the Persian Empire. Okay. And so I also think that uh, by the the time that these stories come to be written, um, there's a lot of interest in the idea of kind of limitless empire, um, where uh, uh, the idea of Alexander as um, someone who is pushing to the absolute ends of the earth, he's becoming, he's kind of starting to be transmuted into myth, somebody who, and and what what the mutiny does is to give Alexander a reason to turn around and go back that doesn't make him look too bad. Well, the stories that we have are that he cried, that he was sulking, and he does behave very suicidally and self-destructively afterwards. So I, I think he genuinely did want to go on. Anyway, you know what? We are in danger of very Alexander-like behaviour because we should take a break now uh, and then we, we should return. And we've got the Desert March to talk about and his death and then reputation. So, okay. see you in a minute. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. So Dominic, on uh, yesterday's episode, we talked about um, this thing that we're doing in Leicester Square. Uh, yeah, the, the event of the season. This Sunday. And we demonstrated our proficiency uh, talking about cinema and history, which is the theme. By talking and we about had never film, even a, seen a, a that film. That neither of us had seen. We yeah. were talking about Oliver Stone's Alexander. So just imagine what we'd be like talking about films we have seen. I mean, <laughs> exactly. just extraordinary. There's only one way to find out, isn't there? Because well, there we, is. will, we will be talking about films we have actually seen. <laughs> I promise. Um, and uh, so we're doing that. That's um, this coming Sunday, the 14th of November at five o'clock, the Odeon Leicester Square. Uh, and it's <laughs> it's written here. Genuinely looks like it's going to sell out. Last genuinely few tickets looks, available. Yeah. Genuinely. So we're not just lying when we say no. hurry because uh, there are very few tickets left. Yeah, there are not many tickets left, uh, but there are some tickets left. So you do, if you're listening very to this. Few. Very few. <laughs> Very, very few, and they are so <laughs> prized, you would not believe. So this is absolutely your last chance. You have been warned. I don't want to have to tell you again. Uh, please. You just give up, end up giving money to touts. Yeah. We're to encourage that, do we? Yeah, you definitely don't want to. Okay, do. so I'm going to read something else of it here. It's look for Podicon, P-O-D-I-C-O-N, on Ticketmaster, or just search for Rest is History Live is how you can get those gold task tickets. Yeah, we will see you there. We cannot wait. We're so excited, aren't we, Tom? We are. 
yeah, of course we are. So see you then. Get your tickets and uh, on with the show. Welcome back to The Rest is History. Uh, Alexander, for whatever reason you care to think, has turned around in India. He's going to come home. Um, the journey home is more complicated than you might think because, Tom, he doesn't go back the way he came. He decides he's going to go back through a desert. <laughs> that, a penetrable desert that, <laughs> that wiped out Cyrus's army. Yeah, that Cyrus the Great failed to cross. So he says, well, I'm well oh, yeah, I'm okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have a go. <laughs> he sends his fleet along the coast, and he and his men... D- are going to march through the desert. And this all goes horribly wrong, doesn't it? But he does He does better than Cyrus. Well, he manages it, but he loses. So he's got bragging rights over Cyrus. He loses colossal yeah, numbers of men. Yeah, yeah. Um, they've had this huge baggage train of women and children with them who are all killed in floods. Uh, they don't get on with the locals, who they call the fish eaters, who they say stink so badly that they can't go near them to ask them for food. <laughs> he loses touch with his fleet. Finally, after all this dreadful march, which does seem... A deluded thing to do. I mean, I don't think you're talking about strategic sort of genius. There's absolutely no strategic sense really in the march. The only explanation people have someone said is maybe he was really keen in the Arab spice trade. So <laughs> <laughs> Quite a long way, could, isn't it? Hoping he desert. Check it out this way. Well, except that except that he he's he's marching along parallel to his fleet. That's the point, isn't it? So I he, think that's the the claim is that actually he's on. really interested in the fleet and the fleet checking out ports and trade yeah. routes and stuff, and he's going to keep the fleet supplied from the land, and that just goes horribly wrong. Anyway, he gets back. Uh, a series of mishaps happen once he esta- – he established himself as a as a Persian monarch, doesn't he, basically? Well, he, he – so he's married Roxana. He now marries um, – I think it's Darius's daughter, isn't it? Yes, Tatera. Yeah. Tatera, uh, and another one as well. Yeah. Um, and uh, he holds this kind of great wedding where lots of Macedonians have to marry lots of Persians. A, a big symbol. There are two big symbols of that, and then there's he try, he messes with the army and tries to reform the army, yeah. sending some back and bringing in Persians and Afghans. And so, and so this is this is this is kind of what inspires um, uh, Sir William Woodthorpe Tarn, yes, who is the the great enthusiast for the idea that Alexander is a kind of a prince of peace who has a kind of United <laughs> Nations champion approach, of human rights, champion of human rights, all that kind of stuff, um, which generally. I think people now <laughs> don't They're totally buy into. But he's the godfather of Alexander's studies, isn't he, Tom? Because the, the key thing is that it's only the Persians. Yeah. Alexander isn't really interested in other peoples. It's the, it's the Persians. And that's what Alexander is all about. That's why he's marrying what he's doing. It's why he's wearing what he's wearing. Um, he, when he, so when he gets back, he, um, uh, he promotes um, one of his followers, I think, to the rule of Persia. Who has actually learnt Persian? Yeah, Pukastus. I think he's yes, yeah. and um, I think that's really telling. That's that's what this is all about, and inevitably, this there's a mutiny, isn't there, at Opis? Exactly, and this is at Opis is where he basically gathers his men and he says, "I'm going to send a lot of you home now. Well done, you're finished. The quest is over." And they cut up rough because they know they're being cut out of basically his new empire, and they're being supplanted by. Persian replacements and his court. He's got Persian secretaries. This is where this eunuch Bagoas comes in, who's clearly Alexander's side a great deal. And he's now dressing in sort of Persian outfits. The troops don't like it. They're kind of Macedonian farmers and stuff. And they're, they feel that he's betraying them to this sort of foppish, luxurious, the, the very people that they had always been brought up to despise, I suppose. Do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. 
And that makes sense. Um, And I think that that's basically what's going on. The last sort of year of his life is very miserable because his great mate, um, Hephaestion, dies of fever. Alexander builds a monument to him, which still stands in Hamadan. Have you seen, you've been to Iran? I have. have yes, I have. Yes, have you I've seen, seen it? Too. Yes. Oh, I'm very envious. Yeah. Um, is... And then what do you think? People say Alexander in the last year of his life is planning a new expedition. Arian has to Arabia, plan- isn't it? Yeah, Arabia. Arian has this brilliant line, which is really too good to be true. He says, even if Alexander had added the islands of the Britons to Europe, he would have still gone on looking for unknown lands. I think that's true. He'd invaded Iceland. <laughs> yeah, Greenland or something. Greenland. Um, so he's sitting there and he's planning this new expedition to Arabia. It seems the ships are all ready. He's drinking a lot. It's getting hot. He's in Babylon. And then he dies. And the question, which lots of people have asked, is, is he murdered or does he die of disease? What do you think, Tom? We have absolutely no way of knowing. I think we do have a way of knowing. Do we? Go I, I, I'm much more certain than you about lots of these things. Uh, he falls ill on the 28th of May, 323, at a party with, supposedly at a party held by Medius of Larissa, one of his officers. He doesn't die till the 11th of June. Even the accounts that slightly disagree with that say he still doesn't die after between 10 to 14 days. And most historians, I think, say that the, there aren't poisons that people use in the ancient world that take that long. And if you were going to assassinate him, you'd do it quickly. And you'd have a succession plan in mind. And, you know, this is a place that's well known for malaria and other diseases. And it just makes sense. He's exhausted. He's drinking too much. Um, You know, it's hot. It's unhealthy. He gets malaria or something like that. That that makes sense that he dies in about two weeks, fits the symptoms. I still think that that all these descriptions are so late. Oh, so overlaid. I, I just I just don't think that you can you can derive a medical diagnosis from I think you Accounts should, written. I'd like to three or four hundred years after. Now, once we finish this podcast, you should be emailing all the historians of Alexander and <laughs> leading universities across the world, and telling them telling them to desist forth, forthwith. <laughs> You've seen through their their lies. No, I just, I, you know, I, one of the reasons I haven't written a book on Alexander is I just think the temptation to tell the story like as though basically it's a kind of romance. Yeah. It's so strong. And that's why it, it works so brilliantly as a children's book, because you're not worrying about that kind of stuff. Of course, yeah. But I, I, I think that um, it's... Top killjoy, the, Tom Holland. Well, it, <laughs> it's, 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 it's a kind of narrow boundary between history and romance. Yeah, it is. That's and what makes the story so exciting. It is. It is. And so we have, we, we, you know, we have these, these stories that are written in the Roman period that we can treat as history because they... they give us recognizable place names they they give us characters they give us motivation and battles and all that kind of stuff that that have the kind of semblance of reality but tom you didn't say this about thermopylae and salamis well no uh, be- because with thermopylae and and salamis we know that the guy who provides our main source spoke to people yeah. who fought at it I, that, I, clearly he's elaborated it yes uh, no question about that but it's more rooted in the reality of what happened i think than stories written centuries and centuries after. The stories that are clearly based on sources, that the historians themselves say, I'm basing this on this guy, I've read this book. I mean, they're completely upfront and open about the fact that they're using sources. They are, but but it's impossible. It's impossible for us to judge between between them. I mean, it's not as though one... It is impossible to judge, yeah. One might be... One must be true. I mean... None of them might be true. Yeah, that's, you're right. That's the problem, you're, and it's exactly right the same as it's exactly the same as with the Muslim conquests, the Arab conquests. That 
the difficulty in accepting these as kind of historical fact, you know, detailed accounts of what actually happened, I think is profound. Okay. And I think the same is true with Alexander. I think it's, I, it's, it's I a brilliant story. Uh, you know, it makes for wonderful children's books. It makes for wonderful uh, novels um, and, and so on. But I think that it's very difficult to know how you write it as history. Okay, so Thomas had his rant about as rants about. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah. And um, now, but but, just... but but the other but the other the other uh, you know the other kind of intriguing thing, and which I think highlights that, is the way in which even as these these kind of histories in inverted commas are being written, you're also seeing the other way in which they can go, which has become romances and increasingly yeah. fantastical stories about Alexander, in which um, he he is the son of Ammon, or he is actually. I mean, it, it kind of ends up weirdly uh in persian traditions that he's a persian that he's the son of a, a persian king or, or a son of a pharaoh um you get he, stories about him going to the very ends of the earth you get goes stories in a about submarine him doesn't he goes going in a submarine, submarine goes up in an air balloon lifted by um by birds uh yeah. kind of amazing stories and you start to get um jewish christian muslim traditions so the jews are unsure what to do with him you know is he a kind of insane megalomaniac they just end up thinking no actually uh that so a tradition arises that he he goes to jerusalem and he basically acknowledges the the god who's worshipped in jerusalem in the christian period he he gets kind of transmuted into a, a, a kind of christian even though obviously he's born before christ yeah um and and then he appears in the quran most amazingly of all he's the horned one or is he in he's the, the dulcanane the two-horned one yeah which must can only be the horns of ammon so there's the amazing thing that the details of this, you know, this trip to Siwa where he goes to the Oracle of Ammon has this kind of distorted echo in the Quran, which is the kind of, you know, so opposed to idolatry yeah. and paganism and all that kind of stuff. And there he is. And and Alexander in um, in the Quran, he's, you know, it's his pothos. He's going to the limits of the earth. He's But let's talk about, um, talking about limits. We've got lots of questions from the listeners about legacy and empire and so on. So Jonathan Wilde has a question. Was his empire too big to last? Because obviously on his deathbed, according to the sources, which Tom believes are all made up, he <laughs> famously says, they say, to whom will you leave your kingdom? Perdiccas, his regent, says to him, his sort of who ends up basically being his successor in some ways, says to him, who are you going to leave your kingdom to? And he says, toi kratistoi, to the strongest. And then it all falls apart. Um, the cap, the, the sort of the lads who've come with him all turn on one another and they all, fight and kill each other and it ends up with seleucus is the guy who basically takes over persia and much of asia ptolemy egypt um his one of his generals antipater and his son cassander take macedonia don't they um I, i'm pretty sure i've missed somebody out well you've got antigonus antigonus that's right antigonus Antig antigonus the one i who yeah. um he takes asia minor is that right no, he, he, he initially rules the, the kind of the Persian stretch, the Eastern stretch. Right. And then Seleucus takes over from him. Um, okay. So it's a very Game of Thrones style scenario, isn't it? Yeah. The question is, could it have lasted? Tom, do you think it could have lasted? I think if Alexander had lived, I think if he'd established a, a secure succession, um, I think it's perfectly possible. Not too large. He would have had to set, I mean, he would have had to, to make the center of gravity in Persia. Yeah. And the thing is, is that none of the, uh, none of his, successors none of none of the the macedonian lads want to do that so the the capital of of the seleucid empire ends up antioch which is on the the mediterranean coast in in, in 
Actually, it's not Syria now, is it? I think it's this kind of weird chunk of Turkey, but it's, it's basically yeah, Syria. It's Antakya in Turkey. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, Egypt, of course, is Mediterranean. Um, Macedonia is Mediterranean. They, they don't want to, to be out east. Alexander did. And had Alexander ruled from Susa or Babylon or whatever, then, uh, you know, with his prestige, with his political nous, I, I think he could have done it. But he surely would have faced revolts in Greece and so on, wouldn't he? I mean, well, he might have done, but he might, but, 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 you know, but he might have kind of ended up, well, you know, I'll, I'll cut Greece free. Um, yeah. He, you know, he's, well, I, but also, I mean, he's got a massive, you know, he's got a big force in Macedonia. Um, I, th- I think that the infrastructure of Achaemenid rule is there and Alexander understands its value, which yeah. is why Pierre Briand calls him the last of the Achaemenids. He 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 could have been, you know, it could have kind of ended up that the, the Achaemenids go and Alexander's dynasty basically takes its place. Yeah, rather like Egyptian, the way that Egyptians a bit like the Egyptians, yes, a bit like the Ptolemies in in, yeah. in Egypt. But the problem you have with that is that Alexander, in all his lifetime, has never really shown any interest. Particularly, I know he's shown great strategic and political nous in dealing with elites and so on, but he hasn't particularly shown an interest in just governing. He's shown a lot of interest in fighting. I'm, again, I'm not sure that's true. I think he does. I think he, you know, his his appointments of of satraps, his um, his concern with um, military organisation, with administrative organisation. I, th- I think it's. But don't you think it's telling that in the last year of his life, he's already thinking about a new expedition? I mean, just take a break, mate. You know, settle down, found a dynasty. Do you need to go to Arabia? That's what I would see well, as the. Again, you're going to say you don't, you don't, you don't believe any of it happens. Don't, well, we don't know. We, we don't. It's all a dream. We, we don't. Um, know. We don't know. Okay, know. let's. Um, uh, what about the so Jerry and many others? Says Sam, our, our backroom um, mogul. Sam says they've all asked where is his body. Well, we know where his body kind of ended up, don't we? It ended up in Alexandria. Alexandria. Where it gets visited by the future Emperor Augustus, who knocks off the tip of his nose. Supposedly. Now, I don't believe that story, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I think that story is clearly invented. I, I well, you know, the sto- you know the brilliant story. You, you know the brilliant theory about where his body is. No. Which is that... Um, don't tell me it's in Salisbury. No, it's in Venice. Because the, the Venetians arrive in Alexandria looking for the body of St. Mark. Because right. Because San Marco. Yeah, Mark, Mark's body is meant to be buried there. Um, and they go in and it's a time of chaos in Alexandria. And they look around and they find, <laughs> they find this body in a kind of great shrine. Yeah. And so they assume it's St. Mark's body and they remove it and they take it to Venice. And so Alexander's body is in San Marco. Do you believe that? <laughs> well, I was about to say, you don't believe all these sources, but you believe that? <laughs> it's such a good, it's such a it great a theory that I'd, I'd want to believe it. Now, there might be some people listening to this podcast who say, well, you've described somebody who fought a lot of battles and climbed rocks and uh, behaved in sort of outlandish ways. But so what? You know, is it anything more than a children's? Than the, is it anything more than basically the Lord of the Rings without the ring uh, for adults? And does Alexander matter, do you think? I mean, obviously, he inaugurates what we call the Hellenistic Age, the idea of this synthesis of East and West and but do you think that would have happened anyway, or do you think it took Alexander and his conquests to do it? Well, there's a famous saying by a German historian in the 20s, Carl uh, Becker, who said, without Alexander the Great, no Islamic civilization. Yeah. And, and, and no Christianity, arguably, right? I mean, 
So, so he creates, he creates what becomes, you know, the koine, the, the, the common Greek language. But you could say that the culture becomes a kind of koine. It's, it's a, a, a melting pot in which, um, Greek, uh, Persian, um, Mesopotamian, Jewish influences all kind of mix and mingle. And that is the, the petri dish from which Christianity, rabbinical Judaism, Islam will emerge. And yeah. those are absolutely seismic developments. Yeah. So I think, think Alexander, I think Alexander does matter. Yeah. I think also he matters, doesn't he, because of the model that he presents to Pompey, to, we yes. mentioned Augustus. Well, okay, first. so we've got a question from, from uh, Gary Hicks. Was Alexander actually great? And if so, for what? And in comparison to whom? And that takes us back to, the, our, as you said, our very, very first podcast where we talked about that. Um, Alexander, it, it's again, it seems to be the Romans who call him the great. Um mm. The earliest reference to him as great is in a play by a, a Roman playwright called Plautus uh, in the early second century BC. And he, it, it, it seems to kind of derive from a desire to, you know, there are lots of Alexanders who are Macedonian kings. So he's the Alexander who's the great. And the Romans have this, you know, the cognomen, which is a kind of like a, a descriptive um, word. Um, so, 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 so the great is like a kind of Roman cognomen. Yeah. And this is Pompey the Great who Pompey Magnus to, kind of thing. Pompeius Magnus, he he goes to the east and he conquers, you know, vast swathes of what had been Alexander's empire and he brings back Alexander's cloak and he That's sports right. it. I'm sure yes. it definitely was Alexander's cloak, aren't you? <laughs> I'm I sure mean, it was. It's only like three hundred years too late. <laughs> and he adopts Alexander's hairstyle, this kind of Elvis quiff. Yes. Um and so that then beds down the idea of greatness. And of course the Romans have an ambivalent relationship to that because of their distrust of kings, right? The I mean, distrust of kings, yes. And and the, the actually, the, the question, you know, Rome is meant to be an empire without limits, according to Virgil. What does that mean? And so that's why there's this fascination with a, a, a king, a conqueror, who dreams of an empire without limits. And, and I think that's a huge part of what's going on yeah. with, with the, these stories about Alexander. Didn't uh, Caracalla, is it Caracalla, the son of Septimius Severus, didn't he... Um model himself on Alexander as well. And he tried to set up his own phalanx and stuff. Isn't that right? Well, he, he, invade, he invades Mesopotamia as Alexander yeah. had done uh, and is killed while having a pee. That's right. He gets off his horse to go to the loo and yeah. one of his men kills him. Yeah. That would never have happened to Alexander. But they're always doing that. Crassus does it. Uh, Julius Caesar was preparing to do it before he, he gets assassinated. Mark Antony does it. Yeah. Uh, Trajan does it. Uh, Caracalla does it. Uh, Julian the Apostate does it. Uh, th- they're all invading. <laughs> and it all goes wrong for all of them. And, and it always much. goes wrong. And so, and so that again burnishes the the legend of Alexander as someone who could actually do it. Uh, this yeah. absolutely, I'm so glad you've said this because this comprehensively proves that I was right when I said that Alexander <laughs> would okay. beat Julius Caesar. <laughs> and Mary Beard refused to answer uh, when we had her on the podcast talking about classics. We had that crucial question: who would win a fight? Lots of people have asked us more of for iterations of this question: who would win a fight? Genghis Khan, Julius Caesar, Augustus, Napoleon, or Alexander? I mean, I think my answer to that would be that obviously Alexander would win in a fight, but Augustus would win the peace. Do you not yes. think? Yeah, I think so. I mean, they seem to me the two poles, actually, of leadership. They're the two great figures, the two great paradigmatic leaders of the ancient world. But Alexander's empire doesn't last, and Augustus's does. And that moment when, Octa- when he's Octavian at that point, when he's in the tomb looking at the, the body of Alexander, I mean, that's one, surely one of the extraordinary moments yeah, in all history. Yeah. Cleopatra has, I think, just died, just killed herself. And Octavian goes down and he goes to see the tomb of Alexander and sort of stares at it. And I think he leaves flowers or something. 
And then they say to him, the attendants say, would you like to see the tombs of the Ptolemies now? He says, no, I didn't come to see dead <laughs> men. I came, to see, I came to see a god. I came yeah. to see a god. And, um, yeah, do you think people will, for hundreds of years, will still talk of Alexander in this sort of awed? Not if they've been listening to you dissing the sources, obviously, but... I, I think so. And I think that I think the reason for that is in, in that poem that we began this episode with the Robert Lowell one, you know, that 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 you can say, yeah, he's he's a terror. You know, his crimes are terrible. Uh, he, he, but they're not crimes, are they? They're not crimes well, but, by, the, but, but, even what, by the standards of the age. They're not even remotely crimes. But what? Well, well I don't know. I mean, I mean, killing. people at the time didn't say he's a bad man. He's a bad king. Yes, I think they did. I mean, no, I think the scale of of, of the slaughter at Tyre. That's the, the only um, instance, though. Yes, yes. Uh, but I think the, the, um, we live in an un-Alexandrian age. Uh, right. people are hostile to the ideal of greatness that he embodies. Um, yeah. people are suspicious of it, but the, the number of people who replied to this question, I think indicates that his charisma still blazes bright. Absolutely and, it does. you know, we are fascinated by apex predators. You know, we're we're more interested in tend to be more interested in Siberian tigers or sharks than we are in sheep. Yeah, I'm sure that's and, true. And, and I think that Alexander kind of satisfies that need. On which we well, no, we should end with. All right, do you um, know what? I know how I want to end, Tom. No, well, I want to end with Barry Grogan. Well, you can end with Barry. Is that the last okay, question? So, so Barry Barry Grogan has said, "I'm 31. Can I conquer a similar sized empire by my next birthday?" I think there's tons of time, Barry. <laughs> Um, I don't never give up. Just hope. don't invade Afghanistan. No, keep well. I mean, get, you need maybe, an oracle. Maybe Egypt. Maybe Egypt. Well, maybe if I if I read the final lines of my children's history of Alexander oh, the Great, yes, that's the, that's the. Then way I to think end. that will inspire Barry because this <laughs> answers his question. So I say, uh, it's great that I'm able to quote myself at the end of the podcast. Yes, um, yes, uh, Alexander style modesty. So here we go. Historians argue about him to this day. Some see him as a noble champion of universal brotherhood. Others as a selfish monster who cared only for fighting and killing. How should we remember him? Screaming defiance on the field of Galgamila, slashing decisively through the Gordian knot, bowing his head before the oracle of Ammon or sulking in his tent in the reins of India. All these images are true enough. But, Tom Holland, perhaps we should remember him as he began. As a boy who loved tales of gods and heroes and told his, what are you laughing at? And told his friends that he too would be remembered in poems and songs. Now, in this at least, and this is a message to Barry, he was not so different from boys and girls everywhere. Did you write that? Yeah, I'm still going. You literally wrote that. Yeah. Few of us seriously think we are the children of Zeus. Few of us. But we all love stories. And we all love to picture ourselves as the heroes of our own adventures. And perhaps inside all of us, there is an inner Alexander. <laughs> this is a terrifying glimpse into the Sandbrook soul. This is, perhaps, this is what I tell my son every day. Perhaps inside all of us, there is an inner Alexander lifting his eyes to the horizon and dreaming of glory in the world beyond. Well, on, I, I, I can, that's the way to end, isn't it? I didn't expect that reaction, I have to say, but I can, no, I'll, no, I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's brilliant. I haven't yet had the chance to read it, but I can't wait. Um, clearly, clearly, you could do with a laugh. <laughs> I, I, think that, I think that that may just about, that, you know, that may serve to change the entire attitude to Alexander. I think an entire generation may grow up dreaming of becoming Alexander.
in a way that they used to back in the good old days of Mary Reynolds. Bad news for the people of Iran. Well, no, right. maybe good news because they can be integrated into a universal brotherhood of man. I look forward to it. So on that happy note, uh, <laughs> we, we will see you in a few days for Remembrance, Remembrance Day, yeah, a much more solemn occasion. But we've actually secretly recorded that one first. And, I'm uh, and, sure you. and you've written a book on that as well, haven't you? On the First World War. Yeah, oddly. Yeah. It's funny how these things yeah. happen, isn't it? It's weird how yeah. they keep cropping up. Uh, Do but you have any she- inspirational messages for, for boys and girls in that book? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a boy and girl inside all of us, Tom, <laughs> beneath the layers of cynicism. <laughs> I know uh, <laughs> I know the listeners think of me as a much less cynical person than you, clearly. And a lovable uncle. A lo- <laughs> yeah. Well, there are different kinds of Encourage- uncles, aren't there? <laughs> <laughs> no, lovable one. Encouraging boys and girls to invade Persia. Right. On that note, see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.